The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. And we're live. It is Sunday, April 26, 2020, 5 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. We have some weird Boris Johnson news for you today from the BBC. I just want to read you the headline, Coronavirus, colon, Boris Johnson's return to work, quote, a boost for the country, unquote. Now, I don't know what the coronavirus has ever said, but I know that the coronavirus was not quoted by the BBC today saying that Boris Johnson's return to work is a boost for the country. So I want to say to my friends at the BBC, you need to correct that headline. Uh, You are attributing something to the coronavirus that the coronavirus just did not say. Coronavirus, not that excited about Boris Johnson's return to work. Uh, In Kim Jong-un news, the Washington Post casting shade on the idea that Kim Jong-un is dead, reports that his train has been sighted at a resort. What does that mean? I don't know. The implication is, according to South Korean and American officials, his train wouldn't be traveling around if he were not alive. Why, why, why not? Is it like a particularly trusty dog who will just sort of stay by the side of its owner? Yeah, it's a freaking for, train. I mean, It'll carry whoever yeah. wants it to. Like, I report, you decide. <laughs> we're not allowed to have fun anymore. But in lieu of fun, we are here at the cabin in the woods. Kate is at her cabin in the woods. I am here at my cabin in the woods with Yasha Monk. And we are shortly to be joined by our elusive mystery guest, whom I will introduce as soon as she shows up. In the meantime- Is it Fiona uh, Apple? It is not Fiona Apple. We're not gonna, we're not gonna do- Is it Tori Amos? We're not gonna do 20 questions about the okay, mystery Okay, but guest. I just like, I we're just- We're gonna introduce Yasha first. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to be rude, Yasha. Yes, let's see. Yasha is a non-mystery guest who is actually, I think the proper way to describe Yasha is as a house guest, because I am up at the cabin in the woods, officially turning it over to Yasha, who got eh, sort of an acute case of cabin fever in Washington and decided he wanted to decamp to the cabin in the woods uh, to commune with baby Cannon. So Yasha, welcome to the cabin in the woods and welcome to In Lieu of Fun. Uh, thank you so much. I'm uh, very happy to be on New Fun and very happy to be in this lovely cabin. I kind of want to show everybody uh, Ben's uh, pretend moose heads on the wall at some point during the show. Oh, There's sort of a concession to the rural life, but also a very urbane one. We'll see where we can get Ben's uh, permission for that. That would be... Oh, you're on mute, Ben. Uh, we will definitely do the moose, the, the wall of um, animal heads, um, because all good cabins in the woods should have one. But first, let me introduce our mystery guest, uh, who should be uh, uh, magicked up here onto the screen. I think I and can guess. Some... I think I can guess from the. 
But I but won't do it. I keep it's, trying. It's Jennifer Lawrence. I keep trying to promote her, but she keeps not showing up. So um, I'm not sure why this is happening, but our mystery guest, oh, there, there we go. She is Yay. being magicked in. And the mystery guest is Sarah Longwell. Yay. So, Sarah Longwell is a dear, dear friend of Yasha and mine. Um, hey guys. Hi. Hello. So I, I, I don't quite know how to introduce Sarah, except um, to say that uh, Sarah is um, the most fun, renegade, Republican operative who's now running amazing uh, anti-Trump ads uh, you will ever meet. She was recently the subject of uh, an amazing New Yorker profile. All those amazing Republicans for the rule of law ads that you have ever seen circulating on Twitter are all the brainchild of Sarah Longwell. Uh, she is the pride of Kenyon College and uh, and she is um, our mystery guest today. So welcome, Sarah. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, can you hear me? Is it like? Does no, it you're great. Okay. It's really nice just... to meet you, Sarah. It's really nice to meet you too. Um, are there people who watch this, or is it like just the four of us? I think oh, it's no. just the four of us. No, other other people. Yeah. Other people. Don't yeah, say so that. You shouldn't <laughs> worry about anything inappropriate that you're going to say. No one's ever going to see this. Um, uh, no, there are people who watch it. There are okay. there are probably about 40 or 50 people watching it live. And of, over the next several days, somewhere between 300 and 1,000 people will watch it on YouTube. 1,000 people just sit and watch you in your t-shirt? Just hanging out? No, they come for you, Sarah. Oh. They come for you. Well, it's funny. I am the mystery guest because I would be a mystery to a lot of people. So you don't know. Oh, you I was guessing before this. All I knew was that there was a New Yorker profile about someone. And I was like, is it Fiona Apple? Is it Fiona <laughs> Apple? <laughs> then I was like, I looked up the New Yorker website and I was like, oh, they just did another profile about Tori Amos. Maybe it's Tori Amos. Um, but I will have to say that I, I'm so glad that you were here. Um, not least of which because I have absolutely nothing to say and I would pretty much be like completely rendered mute if Fiona Apple showed up in our in our Zoom conference. And I, I can't imagine your disappointment at getting me versus no, Fiona Apple. It's actually, I have like a bajillion questions for you. I have like I know I've right, read the profile, I like know the things. I like and this is fascinating. This is gonna be fun. We also have similar like I, I would I would much rather talk to you, Sarah, than to Fiona Apple. This is what I'm saying. Thank you, Yasha. You know, I would yeah. rather I would rather talk to you too than Fiona Apple because I would have to start with Fiona Apple saying, "Excuse me, can you tell me who you are?" And I don't have to say that with you about all of us. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So it would be a great power move, though, to be like, "Hi, Fiona, Fiona Pear, Fiona Apple. Who, who are you? What are you?" <laughs> I mean, I would have to do it sincerely. She must be some kind of pop culture figure because I, I've never heard of her. She's the one who looks really hungry in all of her music videos. <laughs> Sad uh, okay. and hungry. Okay, <laughs> like, let's, let's, let's just ask you the, we can just ask you the questions we would ask Fiona Apple and we can call you Fiona Apple. That's totally fine. I'm sure that I will have nothing that's useful <laughs> to say on that track. I will say to the, to the 
your point about she had a there was a profile of her in the issue before my the one that had made it I, so I, I had actually looked at it to be like because i was pretty nervous about the photos especially uh because they'd done a whole photo shoot and i was like i showed up in jeans i asked them at one point if i could wear this what i'm wearing right now which is what i always wear which is a zip up fleece uh and they were like you can if you want uh, <laughs> So, so I, I opted not to. My wife made me wear a blazer, which was which was fine. So I was pretty nervous about the photos, but I, so I was reading her issue, and the photo of her is like a bed. She's like spread out on a bed, you know, looking like sort of in the fetal position, like looking pensive. And I was like, these are not what my photos are going to look like. <laughs> and of I course, mean, it, of course, it wasn't. It was like clip art of me, like smushed between two elephants. Authenticity in all things, Sarah. Yeah. I like the picture of you and the elephants. Yeah. Um, well, this is going to be a fun day. I all right, feel like well, I'm like very so, much looking forward to this. So Kate, you said you had a gazillion questions. So get us started. Yeah. I mean, I'm just kind of interested. These are not going to be like, these are just don't feel obligated to answer these if they make you uncomfortable or anything else. I'm just kind of like curious. Um, so um, I Kind of came out my parents were both republican conservatives like elected officials i came out in like late high school is by my parents were very um not understanding of that uh and thought it was a phase and everything else i'm now coupled with a man so like i pass and so there is like that whole thing um and i'm just kind of like curious what your journey was like how you kind of came like how you came to conservatism or like republicanism whichever you kind of identify with and how you did that as a gay woman yeah i mean what i normally say which is sort of a cop-out is like i knew i was a conservative before i knew i was gay uh which really just means that i was more interested in politics before i had really like sorted myself out um and i was pretty interested because my, my parents are both conservative and we had like sort of weekly standards all over the house and um, early on in, in high school, I had a very liberal uh, history professor and I went to a very small school in central Pennsylvania. And so I had like the same guy all four years, Dr. Jones. Um, and he and I used to just like get into it. And my mom would always give me books to read as kind of like my ammunition in class because I love to mix it up with him in class. And, uh, and so I don't know, that's, I just, I felt, I sort of have always, I was pushing back even at a young age on whatever was the dominant philosophy around me. I think some of it is just rank, annoying contrarianism. Um, and so- Are you uh, the annoying contrarianism? Yeah, me, me, yeah, me. You are, okay. Yeah. Um, and so uh, it wasn't until college uh, that I came out, although I should have known, I mean, I was like, well, now I'm just stereotyping. Other oh, wait, do you think you're a lesbian because of contrarianism? No, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I think I was, I was going to make a joke about the fact that I played three sports in, in high school and then I played two sports in college. Uh, I played field hockey and softball. And so like, it was just a thing that was bound to happen. I like wasn't going to, couldn't avoid it. Um, and like, I came out like everybody else does, which is I met somebody, you know, like my senior year of college that basically made it unavoidable. And then once that happened, How old I was are you? Like, just like wondering like what time, cause there was like, I remember a lot of people getting, when I, I graduated from college in 2006. Okay. So here's the thing. This is, it's actually an interesting question because much like there's a generation that is called Xennials, which is basically people 78 to 82, which is exactly what I'm in. I was also in this exact, what I think was the last wave 
where it was like not cool to be gay like sort of like right after me like the freshman when I was a senior yeah they were like all out like they had been out in high school and like that was just that was not the experience that I had nobody was out L lots of people came out later but at, Ober at Oberlin everyone was out when I was there yeah, well, Oberlin, <laughs> Oberlin's like the one example where people go and like get turned actually. Like culturally the pressure is just too much. <laughs> uh, it, it is funny, you know, I, I went to high school in Germany and went to college in England and I'm in a similar generation. I was born in 82 and nobody was out in my high school. I mean, I think a few people sort of were semi out, but nobody was out out in my high school. And when I go to college and like a third of a class was out, it is a very interesting contrast and partially it's sort of Germany versus England and so on but but you're right it's right at this sort of moment where the cultural visibility of it and the sort of you know whether you if you're in a red liberal privileged environment how much you have to hide it just just turn very quickly in those years yeah I, I really think that's true uh that things were changing and I think about that in terms of so I graduated college in 2002 and so three years later is when Massachusetts passed the first like the first gay marriages were legally performed in Massachusetts. And so it was right at that cultural moment where it was a big debate. And it was probably the, it's sometimes I look back and think it was a little bit strange that I managed to like really think being a conservative was for me. And I think, again, it just goes to that either contrarian instinct or whatever it is, because that was the issue that was really defining conservatives at the time. I mean, you think about the 2004 election, mm -hmm. that was as wedge of a wedge issue as you could use. Um, and, and, uh, and of course, what's crazy about that is Ken Melman, who was sort of running the RNC at the time, of course, came out later, um, which incidentally, his coming out is what led to, uh, there was an advocate article about conservatives coming out of the closet. And my friend- I remember that. Harry Elleveld. And so and I was- Did he say out a bunch of people against their will? Well, that was different. There was a- It was a so different one. But this was an actual thing that was happening at the time when I was a young, like my, my I, this is in the piece a little bit, but- um, it didn't really get into it, but I ended up, uh, I was working for a conservative think tank for the first three years I was out of the school. I was working, uh, the person who was running the communications at the time was somebody named Christine O'Donnell. And I don't know if you guys remember her, but she was the I am not a witch person. Yes. She uh, was the witch in, in Delaware. She was not a witch. See, that was her thing. Was she was not a witch. <laughs> she will always be a witch to me. In my heart, she's a witch. And so she worked at this place. The, the which she worked in a communications position before yeah, she, she went on the campaign trail and said, "Let me make one thing clear: I am not a witch." That's right. That's right. She was so, not a talented communications person. So I and then we her. had to like make her float in water and see if she floated. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, but, but before but before that happened, she did manage to unseat uh, one of uh, sort of the it was she was the beginning of that Tea Party wave yeah. that took out Mike Castle, who was a very moderate Republican and then ultimately lost the seat. He was a moderate Democrat, Chris Coons. Um, but so she was running the communications thing. I'm I'm just a kid. And uh, she gets uh, actually she ends up parting ways with the organization for whatever reason. Uh, and I got her job and it had a publishing company and they published Rick Santorum's book. And so this was back when Rick Santorum was like the guy who was the next thing behind George W. Bush. And he hadn't lost a Senate race yet. Um, and so he had this book, It Takes a Family. And I my job, my job was to, my was to, I was like the in-house publicist. I got Christine O'Donnell's job. My job was to like help promote the book internally. And so this is like exactly 2005. 
his issue is gay marriage. My issue is trying to come out. I am just a kid carrying the books around for him, trying to like do my job well. But the, but the thing that made me think about it was at the time there was this group of people who went around outing gay Republicans. They made a documentary about it called Outraged. Um, and while I was working there, they outed his communications director uh, that that group did. And I will never forget it because there was a period of time where I didn't know what was going on, but I knew that somebody had been outed and I thought it was me. And we didn't have phones in our pockets or anything else, but there was this like period of time, I mean, brief period, like in a day where I thought somebody had found, found me out. And I was like panicking wow. internally. Um, and so anyway, I'm but, reading right now, um, John Rausch's, oh wait, wait a second. I'm, this wasn't even planned because I didn't know the mystery guest. I'm like literally reading this right now. This is John Rausch's denial about like his kind of experience becoming like coming out and like realizing that he was gay, which is fascinating because I think, it, I want to ask, we have to have him back on the show so I can ask him like, did you just not know that homosexuality existed? Because it seems like he didn't like as an yeah. alternative, which is very different to the world that Sarah and I grew up in, which that was like contemplated fairly openly, but it was still looked down upon. Like it was not like, and so this is actually, Sarah, so you didn't tell me what year did you graduate from college? 2002. Okay, right. So you're you're um, older than me by about four years. So you're like my partner's age, but like, yeah, like we're like kind of that age and like people were not like I would did gay straight alliance in my school. And I remember the con there was a conservative club that wore black armbands to protest gay straight alliance starting in our school. Like they didn't want this thing to happen. It was a very conservative public school. Um, and so, so, so this very random side note. Why is it that it's always black armbands? Like I remember the stories when I was at Cambridge was when they opened up the last college, Magdalen College to women the the students wore black armbands for a year why is it always the black they're, armbands they're symbols the of mourning right no, i understand but it's yeah. just such a funny so i've never heard of like people on the left wearing black armbands to mourn something it's a, we should, like why don't I they wear conservative culture thing i'm gonna wear a black armband next next class <laughs> yeah, i think we should all we should all wear black armbands uh, uh, but i just wanted so, to say that like i think that you bring up this really important point sarah like the last wave of it being like it not being cool to come out and how much that changes your experience. Um, I would say that like even my freshman year, one of my best friends came out and deeply struggled with it for the, I mean, like I had a lot, I have a, had a lot of friends who went to liberal schools and came out when they were 28 or 29, like did not really find their way until much later. Right. And like, um, didn't have like this kind of John Roche or like me or you or like whoever moment like of knowing all the time, like whenever they knew. Um, I would say that there is like, I just kind of think that it's super interesting that my strongest memory for me was like Ellen on the cover of time. And that being like this Yes, I'm gay. I think that was like the the headline. Yep. It was yep, I'm gay. Yep, I'm gay. Okay, yeah. good. <laughs> yep, I'm gay. And that being like, oh my God. And then And then she after, lost her show. Yeah. And then she had her show. And she had her show then. And this is actually fascinating because I'm a huge fan of you haven't watched the show, but I like throw MASH. I I watched all of MASH and like all of it because I think it's like historically fascinating because it's like a commentary on the Vietnam War but in the Korean War and it's like fat it's just like this whole thing and then I've watched all of Cheers they all address homosexuality in an episode at some point it's yeah, actually in Cheers there's like a Harvey Firestein episode 
when they talk about it. Yeah. And they all address it, but it's always as a one-off episode as if like, there's just like this, there's like this one person who like exists in the thing and we should acknowledge them as if like we would acknowledge a person with leprosy, like (laughs) existing or something like that. Sorry, Ben. I don't, I'm talking a lot. No, so here's my question. So you went from being the uh, head of the log cabin Republicans to being, I I don't think this is an exaggeration to say, the central nervous system brain of the Republican Party in exile. You're the publisher of The Bulwark, which is kind of the inheritor of, of the weekly standard Never Trump flame. You have done these incredible uh, research and focus groups, which I'd love you to talk about. You make these ads, you, um, and you've gathered around yourself the sort of intellectual beating heart of what would be the Republican Party if it believed in things like wisdom, decency, and expertise. Um, and so I am interested in your account of your evolution from the 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 person who was a worker bee in the conservative movement and afraid she was going to be outed to the person who is the nerve center uh, of the dissident Republican faction that represents in some ways the sort of old guard of of it's like both at one level, it's the Young Turks, but it's also the traditional Republican Party. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I just want to say really quickly, since you brought up Jonathan Rausch, that um, just at that, because I, I, I really didn't come out until I was about 25. Um, like it was it, while that while I hadn't, you know, a, a girlfriend in college, it sort of it took me, I was in this very conservative, working in this very conservative, socially socially conservative think tank, it was very Catholic uh, for those three years. Um, and it was people like Andrew Sullivan and Jonathan Rausch who were at the time writing books about being a conservative and being gay. Uh, and th- they were everything to me. Like I read Andrew Sullivan's blog and at one point he came and spoke at UD and I like fought my way up to him at the end and like made him talk to me. And I remember just sort of like word vomiting at him, like, I'm gay, I'm conservative, and I don't know what to do and everything. And he just like gave me a big hug and sort of like set me on my way. But he was very kind to me in that moment. And um, lovely. Made, I made love a huge that difference story. to me. And, mm. and well, so- I have just texted Jonathan Rouse to tell him that he should join us on the show. <laughs> you should get him uh, on. So, we'll- so he, he knows. No, no, he, I mean, he and I he know each other show. now. You know, uh, he and I know each other now a little bit, but I don't know if I've ever quite had the chance. Like it's something I'd say behind his back, but like would be awkward to his face to be like, you were formative for me and like hugely valuable in my life and made actual psychological differences for me to have you guys writing at that time. I think Um, that would mean all the difference. I can't imagine like the bravery that kind of was happening to do that. Like, I just remember my like, (laughs) I, my brave moment was my like 10th grade chemistry teacher, AP chemistry teacher, Mrs. Houlihan telling me that I was embarrassing myself and she felt very sorry for me because I was writing on my live journal 
blog that had suddenly gotten found out by the faculty, like just like my day-to-day diary of my life. It wasn't even anything sexual or anything else. I'd have like these very emotional kind of, she's like, this is so embarrassing for you. And I was like, yeah, you're the past lady. I don't care what you, I don't care what you think. And like, I feel like, I feel like if someone came to me and was like, Kate, I'm so glad you wrote your live journal. I'd be like, you're welcome. <laughs> you, know, that, you know what? But though, anyway, it's what's just it, the, the, just in terms of the intersections, though. That is another big difference, which is the internet for me, and it's why our generation is just sort of split. Is like I had when I was a senior in in high school, all I had was like dial up AOL. Like that, that just like four years of technology made such a big difference. No one was blogging until I was like out of college. Um, but anyway, in terms of the journey thing, I'll just say this is that uh, one of the, th- the thing that happened to me was I was with this, I was doing the Santorum thing. I was just a kid, you know, there to help. I don't even know that he would remember who I was, um, even though like we rode the, rode the train back and forth to New York together while he was doing media hits. I was there in the room with him when he did the Daily Show with Jon Stewart. That's when I got to meet Jon Stewart. That was exciting for me. Um, but the thing that happened was we were doing an event like at our offices, which was this estate in Delaware, and there were protest. There were always gay protesters that would show up at these events. And there was two women there, and they had like a 13-year-old kid. And she was wearing, she was holding a sign facing the road that said, "My two moms take me bowling." And for whatever reason, I was like, "Okay, out. I'm out. I'm out. I'm out." Um, <laughs> like there was just there was just something about that kid. Like that kid is 30 now somewhere and whatever. But like speaking of people who had a profound influence on my life, who have no idea who I am. That child. Well, I, I, I know how to fix the John Rout situation. We'll send him a clip of this of his conversation, and I'm sure that, he, that, that, that he'll be very touched by, by the kind words he said about him. We got to find that kid, though. I know. I tell this story sometimes. Like maybe someday she'll like write to me and be like, "Hey, I was that kid," because um, I just assumed she's someone living in Delaware who had two moms. But anyway, so I left that job and I went and worked for this uh, sort of um, pro-business Republican. Uh, PR firm in DC. I moved to DC. That was a huge help for me in terms of, but when I, when I saw that kid, one of the promises- Where were you living before? In Delaware. Oh, that's right. Okay. So you were in Delaware. Okay. Not practicing witchcraft. Yeah, that's right. But so like, just if I went from central Pennsylvania and like central, central Pennsylvania to uh, the fields of Ohio to study for college to uh, Delaware uh, and then finally to Washington, D.C. So D.C. is this massive metropolitan area to me. And it's when my world opened up. Like it sort of took took that time for it to open up sort of socially. But I, I came to work for a, a PR firm. And, and the guy that I, that I up until just November worked for is a guy named Rick Berman, who is like a well-known boogeyman on the right because he is sort of pro-business. Uh, he's kind of a bare-knuckle brawler PR guy. And I worked there for 15 years to the point where I was kind of the heir apparent of the company. And uh, I, I, it was hard in 2016 when Trump got elected because I had, I had been, I had been wanting to do everything. I wanted to throw my body on top of the Trump sort of whole thing. Like I just want to throw myself on the tracks to try to stop it. I was watching it happen, and to see a person. So if if, if you're somebody like me who's been like working for at the log cabin Republicans, now the incoming board chair, first female board chair for the national organization. And you've been making the case to all the people who are like, how dare you be a Republican and be gay? And you have been making the case this whole time 
that the party is not as racist the way that people make it sound that it is not that there is a, that it is intellectually serious that they care about things like the debt which are things that i cared deeply about i i had been i had always been interested in the um the intellectual side of of conservatism and uh as i was watching the trump thing happen i was like i i, I mean this is a guy like to me it, the idea that he had been made himself sort of relevant politically by questioning the validity of Barack Obama's origin of birth, like, which was just profoundly racist, like, there's no other way to look at it. And so I just could not imagine that the party would nominate this guy. And when it did, something in me like broke, it was sort of like the same way the way with seeing the kid with the sign kind of broke something in me where I was like, nope, I'm out on this, I'm going to be out in my own life. Uh, I this is a, I'm choosing a step different path. And like, that's sort of what happened to me in 2016, which was you just looked at things and said, the world is not what I thought. I have to change uh, how I'm like, what I'm doing within the world. Um, but the thing that the 15 years at, at the company that I was at had, had bought me was a ton of experience in like the nuts and bolts of running campaigns. And, and I think what happened was I, and it's just like meeting Jonathan Rausch and Andrew Sullivan were so vital for me in those early days. What happened was um, I got invited to this group, which is how I know Ben and Yasha. And I suddenly met a universe of conservatives who felt just like I did. It was Bill Kristol and Mona Sharon and Linda Chavez and all of these people that I had grown up reading. And the thing was, all of those people felt exactly like I did, but they didn't quite know what to do. And the one, the place where our our sort of worlds then were able to intersect was that I was like, I know what we can do. Like we can start running ads. We can do focus groups and understand what happened to the Republican party. Like we can do research. We can tell people about what's going on. Uh, we can fight back. We can fight back on trade. We can fight back as Republicans. And everybody was like, yeah, let's do that. And so I think um, I, 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 I sort of found myself just around a whole bunch of people who were much, much smarter than I was, much more intellectual than I was, who were all much more famous. Uh, to say more famous is to suggest there was any fame whatsoever, which there of course wasn't. But uh, so, so they were assets and, and, and kind people. And the one thing that I could offer was like, I know the, I know how to do this thing, like the nuts and bolts of it. And so since then, let's just tick off what you've done. Cause I, like, I actually think the New Yorker story kind of understates it. Like, you- It's hard to cover you, that much in 7,000 words. <laughs> <laughs> Look, Pieces I mean, are long, man. You, you, when the Weekly Standard fell apart, and it fell apart because there was a political decision to kill it, you recreated it. I mean, and you did it in, an astonishingly short period of time. The bulwark today is essentially as vibrant as the Weekly Standard was when it went under. Um, yeah, well, there's you, a reason for that. It has nothing to do with me. It is, it is because I was able to port over a bunch of the Weekly Standard staff when- Well, you were, were able to raise the money yeah, to that's port true. over a bunch of the week. I mean. I, but that's part of who, knowing the nuts and bolts of a campaign, right? As somebody who runs a publication, yeah. the speed with which you were able to do that was awesome. And I don't know anything like it. You know, when normally when a publication goes under, 
much less goes under because somebody made a deliberate decision, let's sink this motherfucker. There, there isn't somebody who says, I got this and goes and quickly raises enough money to, you know, for the week, the weekly standard podcast to turn in seamlessly to the bulwark podcast. It doesn't even sound different. It has a different guitar riff at the beginning. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, You know, there's a, there's a, um, uh, the speed with which you did that was unbelievable. The volume and quality of the ads is amazing. Um, And you're the person who, when we go to these these, uh, retreats, the Patriots and Pragmatists retreats, your briefings about what you're hearing in these focus groups in Pennsylvania from reluctant Trump voters, is always something that like everybody's looking forward to um, because it's actually an incredibly rich source of sort of information about where the 2016 election was actually lost and what those people want. Um, and so I, I, I like give us a sense of the landscape of your activities right now. I've just touched on some of it, but what is the Sarah Longwell empire encompasses what components at this point? Yeah, I mean, I do have a few different groups. Um, so I started with Bill Crystal and I started defending democracy together uh, in sort of late 2017, early 18. Uh, we were just starting to get it ramped up. Um, and then about a year, and that, that has Republicans for the rule of law, sort of the most well-known group affiliated with that, which we started during the Mueller investigation to essentially try to protect the Mueller investigation from political interference because early on Trump was doing a lot of saber rattling like he was going to fire Mueller and so one of our main objectives was and for me especially early on it was very much still everything was in a Republican frame everything was like how do we understand and talk to the slice of the reluctant Trump voter which I believed was uh, it, it was larger back then it has narrowed to how many people I think are as reluctant as I'd like them to be um, but, they, but they still exist. Um, and so we, we focused on how, how could you ensure that Trump never got sort of Republicans to say, yeah, fire this guy. And so our focus was on doing the things that I knew how to do, which was run communications and persuasion efforts, um, targeted a very narrow slice of the electorate. Uh, and, and that's what we did. And that's probably still our most popular, well-known sort of brand, because as you, uh, we didn't know this at the time, though, we probably should have on it that the rule of law was going to become under continuous assault so there's never been you know when we started it it was kind of like well you know we'll do this for a little bit and then we'll also do something on trade and immigration but the rule of law has been basically in peril the entire time and so there's been no um no absence of stuff for us to work with and then the bulwark happened you know sort of well well known now that the, they're funding us you know they pulled the plug on on them not because the magazine was unsuccessful but because they had a donor or one specific they just had one person who was funding it and who was you know didn't feel like they were sufficiently pro-trump and so there was kind of a, a band of them who was ready to to pop something else up i was able to raise the money quickly to get it going and i have a really great team that works with me that had worked with me at the old company that now works with me at my new company, uh, video guys, web guys, you know, project managers that helped me and helped 
the, the new magazine pop up quickly because they could quickly build a website, get all the equipment going. You know, I think one of the things that is challenging for anybody who's trying to do something like that is all the back end stuff. Usually they've got the intellectual muscle. What they lack is like, how do you like make all this, you know, do yeah, tell work. me about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's and, me. And I think that's, that's, I what, that's what we brought. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's a- Sarah, this is actually kind of what I was like, kind of like my, my takeaway. Cause I think that like your mixed background in terms of like coming from something that would, people would typically think would make you a, like a very progressive person. Um, but being from a socially conservative background and then kind of how those two combined can inform you. Um, I didn't come from a background that was like, I came from a local like conservative type of like, I'm like a rock my parents used to describe themselves as Rockefeller Republicans type of like kind of thing. Um, and an idea of moderation that has like, we've moved away from now, um, in the Republican party or like, you know, um, and I'm just really curious, like, what do you think it'll take? Do you think it's possible to create a bridge party right now? That is like, like, I, I literally think that statistically the support that Trump has with like 38% of the population is the definition of like, of like what we need to create a bridge between the people who are never Trumpers and like the people who are, you know, who are progressives, but are not like so far out in the progressive movement that they want to have some type of moderate, moderate beliefs and things. And like, what will it take to turn this country into a three-party Country. So this is this is question is so closely related to Mark Stein's question. Oh, sorry, I, sorry. Oh my gosh, I'm I forgot Mark Stein un- was here. I didn't see him. I'm going to unmute Mark uh, and let him pose his closely related question. You just like let people jump into your your show. It's like a radio then, show. That's so great. We have like the live audience po- writes little questions in the Q and A, and then we rapture them in to pose the questions live. So Mark, the floor is yours. You gotta, uh, except we can't hear you. You're not muted. Hmm. All right. Can I read Mark's question? Yeah, we're gonna gonna read your question, Mark. Go for it, Kate. Sarah, how do you envision the Republican Party recovering from the Trump years, returning to its fundamental values and growing its base? Yeah, it's tough, tough question. Um, So, uh, first of all, in the short term, so there's sort of short, medium, and long-term things that need to happen. In the short term, though, this Republican Party, uh, which resembled like the evolution, to call it an evolution, actually isn't even right. Like the just whole wholesale capturing of the Republican Party into something that is more of a populist nationalist party um, is something that has to be like torn out at its root. And so, you know, people accuse me now, just like I was accused when I was a gay Republican of being a traitor of some sort to something. I am now just, you know, people are like, just admit you're a Democrat. And uh, the thing is, is like, I support Joe Biden for for a lot of reasons. I, I would have supported a whole host up until just about Bernie Sanders to, and then I don't, then it would have been a totally different ball game about what we do in the center. but. I think that you have to destroy Trumpism. And I think you have to, like, Joe Biden cannot just win this election. He has to win this election, but he can't just win it. He has to win it by so much that the Republican Party feels the sting of that loss, that they realize that this gamble did not pay off and they accept the fact that there needs to be a wholesale change. 
But that's the kind of pitch I might've made to you a couple of years ago. I think one of the things, uh, and I'm always interested in what Yasha thinks about this stuff, but I think one of the things that is deeply concerning is not only has every responsible Republican who was resistant early on, like take your Nikki Haley's or, or whomever, have, have they either, they've either dropped out altogether, Will Heard, or they are, they've just, they've gone all in. And, and what's worse is there are people who are positioning themselves like Josh Hawley or Tom Cotton, uh, who have decided, I understand this populist thing now. Like I've figured out where these voters are and I know how to lean into it in a way that is more surgical than what Trump is doing. And so, and the other thing is that I, I think I've realized that makes that um, the evolution away from Trump difficult is that let's say Trump loses, which we all hope happens. Okay, I hope it happens. I can't speak for anybody else. So then what? Trump what? Goes away, meek and quiet, never says another word. Of course not. Like Trump has created now a political dynasty. Uh, you know, at least one or two of his kids have political ambitions. Sarah Huckabee Sanders is going to be the governor of Arkansas at some point. Um, you know, Corey Lewandowski is going to run for Senate in New Hampshire. Like we have a Trump legacy problem in the Republican Party that is not easy to overcome. And so one of the things that to me seems like it's forming, and the reason that I know Ben and Yasha through this group, Patriots and Pragmatists, uh, it is about this sort of cross-partisan group. And I, I, one of the things that has struck me over the last couple of years is how much closer, I'm going to use this, I'm going to use, a, these are cheap terms. They don't really mean exactly, but they're the best I can do to approximate. But the center left and the center right, say your John Kasich voters and your Joe Biden voters, actually now feel closer to one another than your AOC voters and your Donald Trump voters. Like a Bernie Sanders and a Trump voter oftentimes have more overlap and then a Joe Biden voter and a you know John Kasich, Jeb Bush voter tend to be slightly closer because the people there in the middle believe in a certain set of fundamental things, right? And then again, these are not these are not as deep as we should go on this, but for the sake of brevity, right? There's like burn it all down type things on both ends, right? burn it, burn this thing to the ground. And, and then there's the people who are like, actually, this was built on something good, pluralism, good, liberal democracy, good, you know, and like the people who agree on some of the fundamentals now seem like they should like argue about marginal tax rates later and find the ability to like come together around the things that matter. Because otherwise, if you continue to forge common cause with the burn, burn it all down guys, like everybody can see the, the deal with the devil that's been made, the Faustian bargain on the right. And like that, that, was, that was close to happening on the left too. Like they've had their real brushes with it now a couple of times. So anyway. I have so, a so question I have, that I have I, to read. Go ahead, Yasha, sorry. Yeah, so I, I have a Ford and, and, and then a question for you, Sarah. I mean, the Ford is, but I'm actually oddly more optimistic than you and a bunch of the other, uh, you know, heroic uh, conservatives and Republicans who are standing up to Trump, whom I know, about whether it might be possible to save the party. And one of the reasons for that is that I've looked quite closely at what's happened to the Labour Party in Britain. Now, I don't mean to say that Jeremy Corbyn is like Donald Trump. I think that's too simplistic in a number of ways. But what clearly happened in the Labour Party is a kind of hostile takeover. Right. I mean, the people around Corbyn have always been entryists. They've all of their lives they've been trying to take over various institutions, and then they managed to take over the Labour Party. They didn't particularly seem to care about becoming prime minister or, or, or running the country, but they certainly cared about retaining control of the Labour Party. So, what happened there? Well, two things. One is that uh, they, they they lost an election very badly. 
and some of the excitement that was there for Jeremy Corbyn among young people, for example, at the beginning, it was genuine excitement. You know, he went to, um, uh, uh, what's the name of, it, of a huge music festival um, in, in the UK and people were chanting, ah, oh, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, Glastonbury. Um, and, uh, and, and that's just gone now, right? I mean, there was enough exposure to him, but that excitement just, just dissipated among his most hardcore supporters. We still had real hardcore supporters, but we were not as excited about him. Everybody else turned away from him, so he lost an election badly. Now, the thing that comes after Jeremy Corbyn is a guy called Keir Starmer, who is not instinctively a Corbynista, is more left-wing than the leaders of the Labour Party where that preceded Jeremy Corbyn, has moved to the left on a number of things, uh, some sensible, actually, some not so sensible um, uh, in terms of program of a party, and who very studiously avoided being an open enemy of Jeremy Corbyn. So he never quite uh, had the guts to say openly what he clearly believes about Jeremy Corbyn. But as a result, he's able to take the party and move it back into a sensible space. Some things I'm sure you, Sarah, will have some deep disagreements with what he does. I have some milder disagreements with what he's likely to do. But it's very clearly no longer a communist party. And a year or two ago, some of the more senior figures in, in, in the Labour Party, uh, uh, in the former Labour Party, were convinced that the party is gone. And I, I don't think that that's the case anymore. And so I think if Trump loses terribly this year, if, you know, Democrats recapture the Senate, if, you know, states that really should be in the Republican column go for Joe Biden um, in the fall, I think there's space for a similar kind of figure to step in. And there's a few of those. I don't know any of them particularly well, but if you think of a few governors like one in Arizona and other places that seem to be playing that game, but are clearly not Trumpists, then they don't have the courage to stand up to Trump openly, but you could imagine them winning in 2024 on a platform that we should, we should unify all Republicans, you know, we shouldn't either be pro-Trump or anti-Trump, you know, let's leave it behind, you know, I, I want to have a program of the future. But clearly, though, it's slowly move the Republican Party away from that. So I guess my first question is, do you think that's realistic? And the second more important question is, um, will we get there? And what do we need to do to get there for Democrats to not just win in 2020, but to win big? And who are the kinds of people who might be persuadable uh, in this election? Who are the people who we need to speak to? And how do we speak to them in order not just for Joe Biden to eke out a victory, which I think at this point is more likely than not, but for him to win that broad victory that actually forces the Republican Party to change? Yeah, I'm going to take the second part first because it's easier for me. Um, so look, <clears throat> I think one of the things, uh, there was this really bleak moment. There's a, a part in that New Yorker profile where Susan Glasser says she called me and, and said, how you doing? And I said, well, everything's bad. And, uh, and, and what I was talking about was Bernie Sanders was ascendant. He had just won New Hampshire and had a weird type of thing in Iowa. Uh, and it was looking really, really bad uh, going into South Carolina. And then uh, what happened? So we, we, I didn't mention this in terms of my coterie of groups, but uh, we, we had set something up called Center Action Now, thinking in part about if Bernie Sanders is the nominee, somebody is going to have to think about what is the, what is the future where you have sort of a center um, operation where you're finding who these people are. But anyway, one of the things we did was start turning out these disaffected Republican voters who we have been acquiring for the past three years. I mean, we found every last person that we could find who has identified as sort of a Mitt Romney, John, uh, John Kasich, um, 
uh, John McCain voter uh, who's a Republican who's like, I'm out on Trump. And we've kind of built a home for them and, and we know who they are. And so we went out to them and said, do you know that you live in an open primary state and you can vote in the Democratic election? And part of, so, so we, we, we were helpful, but there was actually an organic, I mean, we can't take credit for it. There's an organic surge of college educated voters in the suburbs who just reared up. I mean, normally Republican strongholds like outside of Charleston, they turned out massive for Biden. So he slingshots out, goes into Super Tuesday and every suburban voter basically shows up, college educated, right-leaning independents, Republican women, um, and then every college educated Demo suburban Democrat, they show up in these massive numbers and just absolutely put the nail in Bernie Sanders coffin. Those people, you need them in massive numbers because one of the things that Bernie's campaign has showed is that a truism of politics, which is that young people, while they have lots of energy and passion, don't actually show up to polls in great and decisive numbers is true, but these suburban voters, older voters, they really, they really do. And so I think picking up those women and having seen that movement in the suburbs is the kind of thing, it's the reason Trump wanted Bernie. He knows he loses the suburbs if it's Biden. So, so I, have, I have two follow-ups before, before we go to the other question. Um, I mean, one is that by the way, there's some polling evidence which suggests that young people uh, don't like Biden that much less than they like Bernie. And there's two reasons for that. Um, one is that though some of them may have been more passionately, uh, uh, more, more passionate about, about, about Bernie for certainly he has more sort of very loud support. I think when it comes to a choice between Biden and Trump, it's, you know, with the exception of a few red roses on Twitter, it's very, very clear to most of us people that they're very happy to favor Biden over Trump. The other thing that, that we always forget is that young people are way more liberal than older people. They are not that liberal. Um, it, it is a very clear minority of young people who consider themselves liberal. I forget the exact number. I was, I was tweeting about it a few days ago. Um, I believe it in is- In contrast to like progressive third. in terms of like identity? No, no, if you ask them liberal, moderate or conservative, you have uh, still a good number of moderates and still a good number of conservatives. Now, some of us young moderates would not have known where, who to vote for between Bernie and Trump, but they're clearly going to vote for Biden over Trump. And so as a result, um, Bernie in a, in a head to head poll right now has a 31 point lead among Americans below the age of 30, which is massive. Joe Biden has a 30 point lead among Americans below the age of 30. So it's just not that clear that Biden is going to do significantly less well among young voters in the general election than Bernie Sanders would have done, especially after attacks on Bernie Sanders and so on. Um, that's one point. The other question I have to you for Sarah is that, you know, you're talking about one particular electorate, which is probably college educated, relatively affluent people in the suburbs who would naturally have voted for somebody like Mitt Romney, um, who probably went along with Donald Trump in 2016 um, because they didn't like Hillary, because they thought, ah, you know, I'm sure Trump will grow into his role in the White House and so on, and who now are very motivated to to get Trump out. Um, and I agree yes. with you, that's a crucial constituency. But what about a second kind of constituency, which is just people who, who are probably not college educated, okay. um, who are not very interested in politics, uh, but do vote sometimes, um, you know, who were a little oppositional to the political system in 2016 and thought, you know, Trump, I mean, I don't know that I love this guy, but at least he says it as it is. And, you know, he's not one of the usual people, you know, and who just, this is my hope, and I want to ask you whether those people exist and whether I'm imagining this electorate, just looking at the world right now and saying, my God, I mean, we gave this guy a try, 
what a narcissist, you know, like I'm worried about my, my mom, I'm worried about my granddad, um, you know, whoever it is. And, 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 and he's just there, you know, praising himself. Like clearly we don't have a virus under control. Um, you know, I lost my job or my brother lost his job or whatever it is. And I'm just sick of it. And I'm going to vote for whoever is on the other side. And Joe Biden seems like a good, reasonable guy. Do these people exist? Is that an important constituency? They to- do. And it's, it's actually, a, it, the, and the way that I, what I would name for the name that I would give that constituency are the people who don't like either of them, right? Which is actually kind of a big constituency. And it was a big constituency between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, where people said, I don't like either of them. In fact, I don't like either of them at all. And those people broke much more for Donald Trump. And it ended up being a key constituents, a key constituency uh, and, a, and a decisive one for Trump because the people who were basically like, you know, a pox on both their houses were still anti-incumbents. They'd been through eight years of Obama. They were like, let's give it like the burn it all down guy a chance. I don't know. He's a businessman, which is like the thing I hear in every focus group ever. He's a businessman. He probably understands some things. He's rich. So it'll be cool. And I think that w- one of the things that, you know, as an incumbent now, he's got to run on his record and, and people, and, and to be fair, if we were going into this with the economy that we had three months ago, that, that, that is different than if we go limping into this next election. Although, I mean, even if you look at the polling mill, you know, I think by like 11 points, people still trust Trump to handle the economy over a Democrat. And so, you know, or maybe it's not quite that high, but it is, it is still by a significant margin. And so one of the things that always worries me is that that demographic thinks, oh my God, things are so bad. We need this guy to help us rebuild. Like I've never been one who's like absolutely dead certain. And it's because I spend too much time in focus groups with Trump voters, even ones who rate him kind of poorly, where I just see how much excusing they do for him that Mm -hmm. I worry that people are like, look, the pandemic's not his fault. I don't want the Dems to get in there. I want this guy, you know, who understands the economy anyway. So I, I have a, a lot. I have a lot to say about this, especially because there's a bunch of cognitive psychology research about how you change people's minds that are like kind of like concretely set about these types of things. And like the um, Yasha, the solution is basically talk to them in person um, is more or less the thing. Like that is by far the thing. Like you go and have canvassers talk to them in person, relate their things to them. That is the longest lasting success that you can have. It's um, I can send you guys the articles on that. Actually, it's really fascinating. Um, I'm very skeptical of those articles, but I well, there was one that was actually I mean, one of them was giant fraud, and then the there was there was one that was giant fraud, and then they replicated it, and then they replicated it. Yeah, but I agree with you, Yasha. I want to go. We have to go. I want to. Yeah, I want to shift gears because we have time for one more question, and the question. Sarah, this is the Sarah. This is the Lisa Page puppet. Yeah, Lisa so, Page is not allowed to appear on the show. So she, I made a puppet, and this is Lisa and, Page. And Le- the, 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 the Lisa Page puppet channels questions that if Lisa Page were allowed to come on the show, texted us. She, she, if, 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 if hypothetically, she were to send a question. The, the, the puppet I'm so is confused. To I am so confused. It's not that confusing. It, it doesn't matter. Go ahead. I, I, I'm happy to be. I enjoy, I enjoy being confused. So the Lisa Page puppet has a question for you, Sarah. Ben referred to your discussion with reluctant Trump voters in Pennsylvania and what they want. And I want to hear more about that. What do the voters in Pennsylvania want? Um, I really hope this is the real Lisa Page, in which case, hi, big fan. Um, 
So, uh, man. I cannot confirm or deny that it is. I will say that the real Lisa Page did make a cameo on the show at one point, but now is represented by a sock puppet. Got it. Paper bag uh, puppet. That's Go when you know ahead, you've Sarah. made it. That's when you know you've made it. Um, so, okay, so I, I've spent the last two years doing these focus groups. I do a lot in Pennsylvania. I do them all over the country, but Pennsylvania is the closest um, and it's where I'm from. So it, I feel it's a two hour drive. I could go knock out a couple of focus groups and get home. And so it's easy to track. So like I was tracking people through impeachment, what have you. Um, I have focused on two demographics uh, that I've been most interested in how you move for the last couple of years. One is college educated, uh, right-leaning independent women or Republican women, all Trump voters though. And the other is, um, and these are, sort of unfair demographic terms, but let's say uh, non-college educated working class women. Very different groups, very different groups. So, uh, and, I, and it's, it's, I mean, if I put you in the focus groups and just said like, tell me if these are co a college educated crowd versus a non-college educated crowd, you'd, you'd be able to tell immediately um, in large part about really in terms of how they talk about Donald Trump, um, not, not any other factor about them. Also uh, curious to know what you think, how that like skews in terms of like their se identified sexuality, because I think that like if you had lesbians that are like working class lesbians or like kind of like people who identify as lesbian and like that, that would be totally different from like college educated or whatever necessarily if they're in this kind of focus group. Yeah, I don't. Well, I don't. We don't screen for that. So other than that, I'm just using my own um, gaydar, which is a great actually. So, um, but uh <laughs> Uh, so, so, um, the, the college educated women, uh, much more critical, like lots, like, and, and here's the, the difference in, in the, in the, in the groups is it's the certainty about their own political opinions. So the college educated crowd has a very firm sense of what they believe to be right and wrong. And so they are good at naming this is what I don't like about Donald Trump. And a lot of it is the indecency, the narcissism. Like every time you start a focus group, you do it the same way. Do you think the country is moving in a good direction or a bad direction? And everybody stops, sits there silently. And then they say, what do you mean? Do you mean the economy or do you mean everything else? And so then, and we know that's coming because we've heard it a million times. Let's say, okay, so let's say the economy. And they're like, uh, pretty good. And then you say, okay, everything else, they're like terrible. It's awful. We're divided. Everybody hates each other. It feels like a power powder keg. I feel bad all the time. Uh, I just hate it. And, and they also, Trump's a narcissist and they don't make excuses for him. Now, the main thing that keeps them and a lot of them are out on him. So when you get a college educated group and we're screening for sort of somewhat bad, very bad, somewhat goods, because we want persuadables. A lot of always half the room is out on him already. They're long gone. They voted for a Democrat in the midterms, whatever. Um, and so that's and that's something you've seen quantifiably that demographic moving against him. Uh, and that's really bad news for him because when you lose those suburbs of Pennsylvania, that I mean, Pennsylvania, you know, is looking really bad for him. And I think a lot of it has to do with these women. When you talk to the to the non the working class women, there's way more excuse making on his behalf. There is a, and, and it is, and it is a, it is a grievance based um, sort of, it is, the media doesn't give him a chance. Yeah, he's all these bad things, but they're not on Twitter. They don't have necessarily a sense of like, they have policies that they care about. It's usually healthcare is one of the top ones you hear about. The economy is very big. Um, but even if they're very religious and they know that he in no way reflects themselves religiously, they still do this, kind. I call it the bad boyfriend routine, 
where it's like, well, he's trying, but nobody will give him a break. No one will let him do this. It's not his fault. Um, and there's just a lot more of a sense of it's, it's, it, it and, and the libs are really bad. You know, the Democrats are the enemy. They're terrible. They don't align with our values at all. At least he's out there fighting. At least he's trying. And the number one issue for them, which doesn't come up as much in the college educated groups, is immigration. Because there is a deep seated sense in, uh, you know, a lot of these states that not, and it's not like, everybody wants to just say like everybody, people are racist if they're, if they have these, you know, concerns about immigration policy. That's not the case. It's sometimes the case. You hear some things that will make you very sad. Um, but a lot of times what you hear is a sense of fairness, uh, a sense that like, it's not fair that there are people waiting in line and other people are jumping the line. Things that would make perfect intuitive sense to us. This idea that like politicians should do something so that there's a, an immigration system that makes sense, that works for people. And, um, and, and, and they're exercised about that. And they just feel like politicians haven't done anything. They're like, at least he's trying. Um, whereas the college educated crowd does tend to think more about, they'll say the rule of law sometimes, or they'll say specific things about like the racism seems bad. Um, and so the, the groups are very different. And I think it, it's, it's not at all surprising that one is moving and one is much harder to reach. Although I talk to a lot of the, the working class women because I'm convinced that that is the growth area of opportunity because the problem, the difference too, is they swim in a cultural soup that is very pro-Trump. And it is, and they're and they're much less sure. You always hear them saying like, "Well, I'd have to research that." I'm not really sure. You know, everybody around me is a Republican, and they hate. They hate not just the media, but all the people who tell them they're stupid for voting for Trump. There's just a real sense that they've been talked down to for a long time, and I am sympathetic to it. Started with Bush, but I don't like, know if that's what anyway. you were looking for. Those are just some tight top. No, lines. but this is great. But like, okay, we have to wrap up because we're almost we're at the end of the hour. But the um, but basically, Ben, I'm like just getting started. What an amazing come, mystery guest! Come, come back, Sarah. Come back on. I was literally just. I'm like, I just made a list as we were talking. I was like, repeat guests of like people. I just like, I just think would be amazing. Yasha, you're on it. There's yeah, also like, <laughs> you guys should both come back anytime. Just yeah, you know, this was do this, so great. This was such a smart we do conversation. this every day, and we some like Kate give our lineup for the week, and you guys should join any day you want. Yeah, we have an incredible lineup. So Monday we have Ada Palmer, who is a um a, a University of Chicago um, historian of Renaissance history, uh, and she has also, while she was writing her dissertation, wrote a three-part incredible sci-fi series that is published now that is very deeply relevant for the moment that we're going through, in which an entire um, the entire world is is connected through. Um, not meet space, but entirely through like inter interactive um, connections. And then um, we have on Tuesday, Preet Bahara, who is the former U.S. Attorney General um, or U.S. Attorney for um, the Southern District of New York. Heard of him. Yeah, you might have. And then on Wednesday, we have... Um, Wait, Wednesday we have the four. I don't know how to perfectly pronounce his name. Tomas Ilvis. He was. The oh, you say Tomas? Okay. Yeah. So, oh, um, Tomas. Tomas Ilvis, who is the former president of Estonia. So, like, you know, president of a whole country, former president of a whole country. And then um, we have on Thursday um, David Plotz, the former editor in chief of Slate and the host of Slate Gabfest. 
And on Friday, we have the treasure, current treasurer of Rhode Island, Seth Magaziner. Um, and going to yeah. talk about state finances. Who's talk about going to talk about state finances. He's also like an old friend of mine. So we'll probably throw up some pictures of him from Mardi Gras. Um, no, I'm not going to do that. He would like, yeah, I think actually. you should. I think no, in fact, that no. should be the, the <laughs> thumbnail for the episode. So, we got to wrap up. Oh, can I complain about two things really quickly? One, I was told other people would be drinking. So I've been drinking. And then you guys asked me hard questions. We're, we're, I'm drinking. Yeah, we're drinking. All right. All right. Fine. Fine. That's good. Second of all, I thought Yasha and I were going to spend this segment talking about Sound of Music, which is. Oh, well, I mean. Sound Sarah, of Music. I need to no have you on my podcast. If, I, if I'm allowed one plug, I have a podcast called The Good Fight, which you listen to. And Sarah, you're going to be the next guest and we can talk about Sound of Music as much as you like. I mean, I got very emotionally invested in you watching that on Twitter. I just so for say- context for people who don't know what's going on, I had never seen Sound of Music and I live tweeted watching it recently. And uh, I really was invested in not liking this movie. I did not want to like this damn movie, but I did, I did. I gotta say, I never promised you the Sound of Music. I don't know how you got that. <laughs> All right. Uh, Thanks guys. Kate. No baby cannon, it's a teaser. For the next show with no, Baby no, Cannon. No, no, I think, no, we can't do the next show with Baby Cannon because I won't be at the cabin. No, I don't so, mean the next show, like a show, like a well, show that involves Baby Cannon. Do you want to well, do it now? I think we better do it now if we're going to do it. Yeah, let's do it. I want to fire this damn thing. All right. Great. So you I'm want- I'm going to get more whiskey, Sarah, to so make gonna you go, feel better. We're going to go- Thank you. You want the baby, the full Baby Cannon story, Kate? Yes, you gotta give it to us. That's right. what you promised. So here is the baby cannon story. Um, when, uh, right around the time of the Comey firing, um, I knew in advance of a bunch of stories that were gonna run in various publications. And the early on, it was because I was the source for those stories. And so, you know, I was, um, Actually, Yasha, can you mute yourself? Because I'm actually getting a lot of feedback now. Yeah. Um, so early on, it was because I was the source for some of those stories. And, you know, I, I was an on-the-record source, but I did know in advance that they were coming. And so early on, I would tweet when I knew that a story was coming. I would tweet, tick, 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 tick. And when the story would come out, I would tweet, boom. Um, and then once you do this a few times, this was the part I never anticipated, once you do this a few times, then journalists think you know all the stories that are coming. And so they start calling you to see if you know anything about the stories that you're working on, which means you end up knowing many more of the stories that are about to come out. And so this had nothing to do with any inside information. It just had to do with the fact that I had developed a reputation for knowing what was coming next. And so all the journalists would call me and check in on their stories. And so I had this run of situations where I knew a story was coming out. And every time I would tweet, tick, tick, tick. And then when the story would come out, I would tweet, boom. So about the eighth time this happened, I was walking down the street when this story broke. And I suddenly realized I had on my phone the perfect thing to go with a boom. And the reason was that uh, about a week earlier, a small cannon had shown up in the mail. And the reason this had happened was that I had been flipping through a catalog uh, months and months earlier, and I'd seen an ad for tiny cannons, and I had impulse purchased one. And it had taken several months to show up because they were handmade. And so when it showed up, my son, 
uh, and I did what any red-blooded American would do, which is to take it in the front lawn, uh, yard and fire it at a soda can, which is the, you know, for those who are baby cannon fans, that is the video of the Dr. Brown's can being killed by baby cannon, which is sort of the, the I don't know, sort of er baby cannon video. And, um, and so this video was on my phone and I'm walking down the street, getting ready to click boom and tweet it. And I think I'll just attach the video to it. And so I attached the video and the reaction was unbelievable because first of all, people, everybody loved baby cannon and it was completely gendered in this absurd way. Like men loved it because it was a cannon and women loved it because it was cute and small and a baby. And, and it, was, it was a preposterous, like we playing to all the gender stereotypes that we have. And the other thing that was fascinating is people immediately gave it a personality um, and they immediately anthropomorphized it. And so I just started doing it. And then of course that was an excuse to um, come out to the cabin and blow things up. Um, and then Rachel Maddow did a whole thing about tick, 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 boom, and Baby Cannon. And that was kind of how the personality was born. So Baby Cannon is now retired. Uh, oh, the other thing about Baby Cannon is that I made a decision early on that Baby Cannon takes randomly assigned pronouns um, without regard to gender. So sometimes Baby Cannon will take he or she, and sometimes you know, so baby can don't ask whether baby cannon is male or female. The answer is yes. Um, and um, so baby cannon is now in retirement, but uh, she lives out here at the cabin in the woods. And occasionally when I'm out here, we still do fire her. And so since we're out here transitioning the, ca the cabin to Yasha's use, we thought we would uh, fire baby cannon and we're going to do it from the door because it's uh, still raining here. How far so, does it go? Oh, well, it can break a can. I've been, I've never done a length test. But like, how far does the can have to be away? Four feet, like three feet? Away from what? The cannon, obviously. Do you also brace the cannon or does the cannon kick back? No, the cannon kicks hard, actually. Okay. So here we're going to put the cannons right here. Can you see the cannons? There's so many. They're so baby and adorable and my feminine sense is excited by them. Yeah. <laughs> they are very small. Okay, so I think I have to keep talking or it will show you. Uh so I'm going to keep talking and Yasha is going to light the cannons and then get the I'm jumping into action. And then going to get the heck out of the way because right. they will well, kick back. Uh, do I start with the small one or the big one? Uh, I would start with the small one. All right. Where'd you go? <laughs> That's it, all right. The big one will be bigger. Did they blow up the whole cannon? It's here. It recoiled under the. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. 
What are you loading them with? Is it just the powder or is there something Black in there? Powder. And there's a ball in them. Okay. So we could measure how far it goes if we went and found the ball. Damn. There you go. Ben, that was amazing. I'll have to see how the video came out. I'm excited and traumatized. Does it smell like gunpowder in there? Oh, yes. Yeah. All right. Cut. So we've gone 11 minutes over. My apologies for that. We've done that before. Sarah was worth it. So was Yasha. So are Baby Cannon. Great seeing you both. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye. Bye, guys. Thanks, Ben. Yeah. Thanks for having me. It was so fun. Have fun. In lieu of fun, you can still come hang out with us. Bye, Ben. Bye, Kate.